1: Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give Love & Logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love & Logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com.
2: Welcome to Everywhere, a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, I'm Daniel Scheffler, and this is Everywhere. Every week you'll hear me talk about travel commandments. God needed ten, I needed just a few more. This week's travel commandment, thou shalt throw out the checklist. Checklist. So I never think of travel as a list with little boxes waiting for checking. I see travel more of a continuum, where it sort of never stops because it never really began. With this philosophy comes many, where am I, wake-ups, and to my husband's great frustration, exclaims like, what side of the road am I supposed to drive on? Long live my optimistic sense of adventure, I say. But as much as I don't have a list, they are obviously places I have dreamed of going my whole life and would be so honored to go to. Mongolia was definitely one of those. A country of shamans and nomads, where falconry, horse racing and wrestling in very tight jackets and speedos is just another day in the Gobi. Mongolia is one of those places where everything and nothing is what makes it so special. There aren't any must-see destinations and nothing about Mongolia ticks off an Instagram perfect photo opportunity. It has a quiet, soothing way about it that invites you, as an outsider, to observe and to marvel. My plan was to leave the capital city of Ulaanbaatar and for 10 days just to horseback ride a big loop throughout the country. After about a week in Mongolia, it becomes like a healing balm. My cheeky horse finally starts to evolve its friendly trot to a freedom-inspiring canter across these verdant plains. Now that my body has started to move as one with this being, I was able to feel the vastness of open space in Genghis Khan's homeland. Mongolia was once the largest empire on earth, and today, locals celebrate this legacy with a reverence for Khan. He valiantly comes up in every single conversation you have. Actually, I was feeling a little Genghis Khan myself. I was galloping around the steppe, and all I could see was the biggest sky. I felt like a... Valiant and proud explorer of the unknown on my speedy horse. Of course, at some point during my trip, Mother requested a photo, and her response to the photo was, Is that a pony? So yes, Mongolian horses are a little smaller than other horses, but it did not deter me. I was a powerful explorer on pony back. My hands felt thick after a few days, as I clenched these leather reins, and my thighs were getting their best Jane Fonda workout ever. I felt that the vastness of Mongolia needed a guide, and so a travel operator gifted me Zobi. He reminded me of Poe from the movie Kung Fu Panda, as he had the same sweetness and that appetite. And so together, mostly in silence, we let the landscape become our contented distraction. Of course, Zobi would every now and then, out of nowhere, start belting some traditional throat singing. Somewhere between a frog and Ed Sheeran was this beautiful sound floating around the Gobi Desert with us. We charged across this beauty of Mongolia with dry air coming off the Congo sand dunes and more of the steppe spreading out aimlessly in all directions. In the distance, the Altai Mountains, and tucked into these mountains are these amazing permanent glaciers that have now started to change shape and melt thanks to global warming. But they still contain some mystery in the space-like formations. I think Star Wars should come film here. And really, that is exactly how Mongolia feels. A little otherworldly, like you're traveling into another universe. But besides for these mountainous fishes in the southern side of the country, there is mostly just open land. Endless open land. Just think about the luxury of endless open land. So wherever you go across the country, you find these piles of rocks. Some are giant piles as big as homes. And others, just a couple of dozen rocks, heaped on top of each other. Locals lay these rocks down, combined with blue ribbons, and it's called an ubu. It's a shamanistic worship to rock and sky. And when you travel, it's custom to stop and circle an ubu three times, moving clockwise in order to have a safer journey, of course. If you happen to have mare's milk with you, a little splash on the rocks is considered a good offering. I was fortunate enough that Zobi had family all over the country, and some of them had extra yurts, or as Mongolians call them, gears, for guests like me. A yurt is a round house, almost like a tent, but a little more fun. And since his family was nomadic, we had an interesting time finding them. Entering a gear camp is done with no knocking. Mongolians have an open-door policy for all. The motley duo that we are entered and sat down with Zobi's large extended family. Uncles, aunts, grandparents, and a host of toddlers and newborns. Russian or Mongolia were offered to me, and since I didn't speak either, I settled for a translated version from Zobi. Food here is meat, plus dairy heavy, and handed out en masse. Of course, I received the usual, are you married, question, but in Mongolia, the more important question is, can you ride a horse? Due to all the goats, think Kashmir, nomads enjoy the simple boiling or open-fire roasting of meat with some herbs or plants found on the steppe. Milk, on the other hand, one of the only Asian countries where it is celebrated, filters into every meal and even snacks. Fermented mare milk sits in waiting before entering a Buddhist temple all over the country. And as a sort of sign of welcome, this almost alcoholic watery fluid is handed out as visitors arrive. Besides for this sloshy delight, Mongolians love to snack on cookies called boertsukh which is simply milk curd dried in the sun and then sometimes fried and dried again. Delicious. Surrounded by somewhat surreal elements, the country's nothingness is its greatest privilege, and also its grace. There are no road signs, no real roads even, just the step in the sky. Ever so often, a dust tornado comes up out of nowhere, and takes the meditation a little deeper. And then, out of nothing, a gear tent appears with a family of smiles waving us by. For a country of open spaces, finding the Buddhist temples, wild horses, and what I would call the Mongolian Olympics of archery, wrestling, and of course horse riding, can be tricky. But they're there if you keep your eyes and ears open. Some smaller festivals you just happen upon, and they're often creations just from different families challenging each other. I rode up to a small festival one morning, and Zobi suggested we pick a family and join the festivities. First off, male wrestling. Genghis Khan considered it to be one of the three manly skills, the other two being archery and horse riding. When it came to wrestling, I knew how to pick a team. The one with the best abs, of course. I watched that these stocky wrestlers started their hypnotic gamble. Nothing felt disrespectful or conceited or done for the silly fame of it. It was just a sport. One for the honor of the family as a way to continue these old age traditions that Mongolia just loves. In fact, they found some cave paintings in a province dating back to the Neolithic age of 7,000 BC showing two naked men grappling with surrounding crowds. In the inner Mongolian version of wrestling, any body part other than the feet touching the ground signals defeat. I, of course, would lose this match right away with my pathetic knees. There are also no weight classes, age limits or even time limits in a match. This I found amazing. So it's not uncommon to see a toddler wrestling a grown man during these Nardam festivals. Archery seemed a little more serious to me. The Mongol bow was recurved and composite and I was ready to geek out on bows, right there, right now. But I'll give you the smaller version of my study. Basically, the distinctive recurved shape means that the tips of the bow to which the string was attached is bent in the opposite direction of the draw, dramatically increasing velocity and impact. And composite means various elements were meld into each other, cured and left for years in a storage room where humidity and temperature was regulated. At the end of the curing process, bows were tested. And if the procedures weren't followed precisely, the bow would buckle or rip apart in the archer's hands while being drawn. I watched the speed of the arrows and the precision of each archer's ability. And I knew exactly why I wasn't competing. Horse riding as a competition, I understood better than the other two. I've spent many a day at the races in England, playing Defend the Hat. I struggled when the royal family arrived because some of those hats I really just couldn't defend. But I digress. After spending a day at basically the Mongolian Olympics, I really felt I was starting to understand the Mongolians. They had such pride in country, such love for doing activities together, that they basically engineered Flash Olympics everywhere. I took to my horse and started to ponder about this great country. I was experiencing the unexpected. With no formal plans, I was letting Mongolia show me. And the moment I let go of these checklists and the I have to see ideas, Mongolia just bloomed. I was without plans and Mongolia rewarded me with its spontaneity. As the sun was coming down over the steppe, I felt the country was so eternal and borders seemed so far away that I couldn't even gauge its sizing. Genghis Khan was smiling down at me from the sky and through every pebble and every bush. Maybe he was even ready to challenge me to a little horseback riding. And I was ready for anything. Now for a slight respite, and we'll be right back with Everywhere after a word from our sponsors.
1: Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now meaningful beauty beautiful skin at every age learn more at meaningfulbeauty.com
0: hey everyone it's Ted from Consumer Cellular the guy in the orange sweater and this is your wake up call Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country.
1: Huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes!
0: Wait! Did we just invent California?
1: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
2: Thanks for sticking around. Here's more of everywhere. As much as Holly doesn't remind me of Genghis Khan, she does love a good Genghis Khan. <laughs> So here she is, to Uh, Mongolia.
3: Yeah, so one of the really interesting things that's come up in recent years is a genetic study around Genghis Khan. Like you mentioned that he comes up all the time when you're visiting there, and it is entrenched in their culture. Starting in the 1990s, there was an interesting genetics project where it became apparent that there was a really unusual mutation on the Y chromosome. I don't know how much you know about genetics, but the Y chromosome is associated with your sort of standard male model; those are the what are considered the male genes. I know
2: about male models. You
3: do? Oh, great! Well, then work fine. It's going to be a different story now, but <laughs> but this one mutation they found in eight percent of the males in sixteen of the Asian populations they were studying. It sounds like a small number, but it's a large percentage for a genetic mutation. And it was also determined that the most recent common ancestor of this group that had this mutation lived approximately a 1,000 years ago. And the thing that started showing up in headlines was that approximately 16 million men around the globe are probably related to Genghis Khan— there was a scientific paper done about this study, uh, written by Tatiana Zerjal. I might be pronouncing that wrong, and her colleagues, and they wrote, quote, "...the pattern of variation within the lineage suggested that it originated in Mongolia approximately 1,000 years ago. Such a rapid spread cannot have occurred by chance. It must have been a result of selection." The lineage is carried by likely male-line descendants of Genghis Khan, and we therefore propose that it has spread by a novel form of social selection resulting from their behavior.
2: That's fascinating. It
3: is. So this whole idea is that because we have long heard of how Genghis Khan conquered and took over places, that basically, like, he was spreading this gene so quickly that it has— become pervasive throughout a lot of these populations. So his son did a similar thing. His son, Tushi apparently had 40 sons of his own. Then if they were reproducing at a similar rate, you see where we get to this 16 million number over generations. But here's the thing. All of this is conjecture. I mean, it's some scientific evidence, but the only way that we could ever say 100%, absolutely, Genghis Khan is the nexus point for this happening, would be to test his DNA. Well, that's not going to happen.
2: Right. Well, as I'm signing into my 23andMe account while we speak, <laughs> I cannot see that I'm related to Genghis Khan. I do, however, see that I'm—I share a paternal line with King Louis the Sixteenth.
3: Ah, which
2: makes sense.
3: It makes yeah. sense why I love you so much. Oh, I. Because you know I love King Louis. He was a mess, but I—he caused many problems. But he's one of those people that I feel like if you took him out of the the world stage and the royal position he found himself in. If he were just a kid that I had met in high school, he's exactly the kid I would have tried to take under my wing and protect.
2: Which is what you do with me. (laughs) But less because I'm a mess. You
3: don't really need it. So here's the thing, though. Do you want to know why it's going to be impossible to test his DNA? Do tell. Because we don't know where he is. Very purposely, no one knows where he is. So according to the legend, uh, so he died... When he was on a military campaign in China, we don't know the cause of his death, but the legend goes that his successors actually killed anyone who saw his funeral procession. They didn't want anyone to have seen him in anything but his strongest position. So being dead is not your strongest position usually. And so as his body was taken back to the Mongol capital, they were just killing anybody who saw them along the way. (laughs) So there were 800 soldiers in this entourage and they... The estimate is that they killed more than 2,000 people while they were traveling back with his body. But then once they reached their destination, those 800 soldiers were also killed. And then his corpse was buried in an unmarked grave. They wanted his rest to be undisturbed. Horses trampled the ground so that there would be no evidence of a recent burial. There are some rumors that say a river was actually shifted purposely to cover the site. We don't know if that's true or not. But even though there are lots of scientists and historians and researchers always trying to kind of triangulate the most likely position of his remains, odds are long we will ever have them to test and find out if he really is the source of this genetic mutation that has become relatively common in a, in a genetic sense.
2: Well, isn't that a fun trip to do, tracing <laughs> the history of Genghis Khan? I mean, I went to Mongolia with this idea that I wanted to understand a little sense of him because I'm fascinated with him.
3: Oh, yeah. Biggest
2: empire, this incredible warrior, and all on a little pony.
3: And, I mean, like all of the really large-scale claims made about him in terms of how many people he massacred and how efficient he was and how ruthless he was in his approach to seizing power— And then when you do put it in the perspective of On a Little Pony, then it becomes slightly comedic. But really, I mean, this is a a figure that is so massive, it's still a huge part of Mongolian culture to talk about him today.
2: Well, what I loved about Mongolia, there's this incredible reverence for their culture and love for country. Ella here, Ella, my dog, who's here with us today, as per usual, she's soon to have her doggy DNA done. Because I spend my whole life with people stopping me in the side of the street, especially in Central Park, telling me what breed she is. She's a vishla. She's a vishla. Uh, I'm like, why am I speaking to you? (laughs) (laughs) Who are you? Or people stop me and they're like, I see a Ridgeback. Great. Thank you so much for this information. Imagine I did that to your child in a stroller.
3: (laughs) I see a little Genghis Khan in him. Oh my goodness, that that's a right. fast way to get slapped. I think probably. I think so.
2: And it's interesting because twenty three and me. I mean, it has spread in a way that is really fascinating. Oh so, yeah. As much as I'm related to that king, good mm-hmm. old Louis
3: sixteen,
2: my husband, direct descendant of no other Marie Antoinette, isn't that romantic? It
3: is. Deeply.
2: Somehow our genetic streams have pulled us not to be related. Well, so when you we say be direct
3: descendant of her, then he too would have to be related to Louis 16.
2: You mean like from their child?
3: Right. If he's a direct descendant of Marie Antoinette, he would have to be the child of. Did
2: she have children? Yes. How many?
3: Uh, with him? With Louis? Yes. No, come lo- on, she had
2: children with everyone. No. Didn't she sleep fnute fnut around? No,
3: the rumor is that she and Axel von Fersen had an affair and potentially resulted in a child. But she and Louis definitely had children together.
2: I think that I put like our family trees together and it showed that he comes from her side of the family and I come from his
3: So, yes, side. She's, he's probably from the Austrian side, but not her issue, and then you're probably from the French side.
2: I'm a lot more French than what I thought I was. Maybe
3: that's why I adore you. so.
2: Oh, sweet. Okay, so the other thing that I would love us to talk about uh, Mongolia is it's one of the only Asian countries that really celebrates dairy in a way that oh, yeah. I've never seen that anywhere else. These cookies that I kind of got obsessed with while I was there, that's just Basically, like, fermented milk dried, and it's beautiful, delicious thing, and they make them by hand. Like, these cookies have fingerprints from the lady who's making them.
3: Yeah. You mentioned, like, it's kind of um, a dried milk curd, essentially. How sweet is it as a cookie?
2: Well, it's more sour. It's really my palate. It's that, like, soury, strange, fermented kefir taste,
3: mm-hmm. which Michael hates. Mm-hmm.
2: I know you don't seem thrilled in it either. <laughs> so, this is what I also really love about Mongolia. They do their tea with salt. It's oh, yeah. so unbelievably delicious.
3: It makes perfect sense to me.
2: Well, they call it sutei thai, which is basically just tea with milk. And then they add a little salt and they use green tea for this.
3: Mm. I know it's
2: unbelievable. So, Mongolians take milk from cattle, from camels, from horses, from yaks, from goats, and from sheep. So it's kind of this amazing thing.
3: Yeah, that's a vast range of sources.
2: And then Eirach is this milk alcohol that comes from the fermented mare's milk. And I almost wish that everyone in the whole world can taste this because it's so unique. It's this like almost alcoholic, milky substance. It tastes like watered down kefir but more fermented and you have it as you as you're about to go into a temple you'll have a little swig. And you love vodka. This is like a milky uh, uh, version uh. of vodka.
3: Oh interesting. Yeah. I'm I might like it.
2: I think you will. Now everyone for a timeout. Except for our sponsors. We'll be right back with more everywhere.
1: Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty.
0: Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
3: A Redwood Forest would
1: be cool. Ski slopes!
0: Wait! Did we just invent California?
1: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and logic.
2: Welcome back. Now I'd like you to meet John Reed, who's based in Bhutan and is the head guru of the Amman Resorts. Possibly the best hotels in the world. Morning, John. It is such a pleasure for me to be talking to you once more. Thank you so much for spending time with me.
4: Daniel, it's uh, great to see you again and, and have you join us uh, on your journey through uh, the country.
2: Let's talk a little bit about throwing out the checklist and how you do that yourself personally and how Bhutan slash Asia is all about throwing out the checklist.
4: Wow. Um, throwing out the checklist. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to start that by saying that I always think getting lost is the best thing that can happen to you because um, you end up... Discovering a nook or cranny of a of a small city or town, or just out in the countryside, and you end up walking into a little hole in the wall, or being invited into somebody's home and having the most beautiful experience with the local persons. Of course, when I go to a destination myself, I I do look at some of the highlights of what I should perhaps take in. But then, a lot of what I personally like to do is just start walking and enjoying the neighborhoods and the districts and and taking in what's there, and, and you suddenly come across so many beautiful things that, that are never on a tourist uh, checklist or, or even on your own checklist, so to say. That's what makes travel so special, is if you are so bound to a rigid schedule and minute by minute, you're not going to have fun. I mean, you're, you're, you truly are busy checking the list. And travel is about the journey. It's
2: not about the destination. Right. How does the average person, the average aspirational, let's call them traveler, how did they tap into that? Because I guess the Oman in some ways is prohibitively expensive for some. Flying across the world is prohibitively expensive for some. So somebody, like I talk about, you can go to New Jersey and have an amazing time. Absolutely. So how does that average person tap into this philosophy, you think?
4: I think we're. it's a matter of, of taking that step, so to say, and just letting go, you know, I I come from Louisiana, and every time I go home for a visit, I, as much as I enjoy New Orleans, and New Orleans has so much to offer, I love to just get in the car and drive north, south, east, west, and just stop at a little diner, have a great meal, interact with whoever's there, chat with the people behind the counter, find out what's going on, you know, sometimes you never know, there's a little state fair or something going on. I think you know often the most important thing is taking that step of of engaging um and communicating and and doing it with no no agenda and suddenly you're introduced to many things which people wouldn't otherwise come across or it certainly wouldn't be would never be on their checklist but more than that you are you're engaging beautiful people who as well very often they're so keen to share I think it's so important just to let go and and be guided so to say
2: well I think to me, the kind of key to that, to overcome the fear of travel, is to tap into love. Like, if you can just put that into the world instead of fear, I think a lot of people travel and they're scared to speak to strangers. They're scared to open up. But once you let go of all that and you're just able to pull that love into your heart, It happens naturally, right? Like, it just keeps happening. And all these magical experiences have happened to me, not because I'm in a state of fear, but because I'm in a state of love. Yes. Like, I want to accept and give love in this reciprocal way. If you get onto a plane, let that kindness and love start from the moment you start traveling, and then take that with you. Take that idea of, I don't only want to take from your country, from your place. I want to also return this generosity and this love. Yes. I dream of Bhutan so often because it to me is one of the most magical places I've ever been. And as a travel writer, people ask me, what is your favorite place you've ever been? And my answer is always Bhutan. It's like nowhere else. You arrive with the craziest flight where you think you might die as you see Mount Everest to your side and the plane dips down into this incredible valley, down the rabbit hole, and you're in a magical kingdom.
4: That's Bhutan, definitely. (laughs) Some people say that there's so many layers to Bhutan, and, and there certainly are, but... I think one of the things that makes Bhutan so amazing is this incredible, strong sense of community and how much people care for each other and look out for each other and do things for each other. We've even, in our big, booming 120,000 metropolis of Timpu, you you see this care and love that is extended. But I think, particularly if we're we're talking about uh, those coming from, as example, North America, from the U.S., English-speaking countries— First and foremost, you don't have that that language barrier at all. I mean, you're able to engage with people, the level of intellect that's here. Surprisingly, here we are, this little landlocked country in the Himalayas, but the level of education that's here, the number of Bhutanese that go outside the country for higher education, whether it's the U.S., U.K., across Europe, Australia, they come back with, you know, high-level degrees and whatnot. And the Bhutanese… Are very worldly in their thinking. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Quite often, you see them staying on top of the news, what's happening in the world. So you can have that conversation and, and have that understanding on on both sides. So you've got that. Then you've got this amazing backdrop of this pristine country with beautiful forested mountains. You know, by by policy, by law, sixty eight percent of the country must remain under forest cover. So you've you've got this this policy to maintain the environment, and then this is all supported with the government's policy of gross national happiness gnh so they they do have a commission that that works hand in hand with the government to ensure the well-being of the people really truly i mean it's and it's behind the economy it's behind the environment it's it's cultural and and social preservation uh tied in with with the the buddhist religion as well we are a democracy we're we're now in our 11th year of being a democracy but um his majesty the king um is still very much involved in the in ensuring the well-being of the people there is this benevolence that comes very much from the top and filters its way down through the government and so democracy is truly there it's it's we don't see the ego that we see you know sadly in other countries these days um that is driving so much of governance and it is truly about um looking out for the well-being of the people so guests pick that up very very quickly when they come into the country they walk away quite humbled. They walk away very often in tears because we see people that that come in who you know with that do have a lot of wealth. They've got multiple homes. They've got multiple businesses. They're very very successful. And so guests go away from Bhutan and say these people, the Bhutanese, really don't have a lot of wealth in terms of financial wealth. They may have a, a nice home or they've got their farmland and whatnot, but they don't have a lot of gadgets and and this and that. And and I think people walk away and they say. What they have truly is they have each other, and that is something that's missing in my life. And, and so many, many guests that come to this country, many tourists walk away with this beautiful message in their heart. And we see a lot of guests actually coming back to Bhutan, and the re- when we ask, you know, you've, you're coming back, and this, you know, it's not about checking Bhutan off that checklist. I come back because I want to re- be reminded of how the Bhutanese live and take that message back home with me, and not only live it myself, but share it with my family and friends.
2: Tell me about the first time when you went to Bhutan, how that felt for you. The first
4: time I came to Bhutan was actually in September 2001. I had been invited up on a recce trip, basically, to um, scout out the locations for where we were planning to build our Amankora lodges across uh, the kingdom. But it was more so an opportunity for my wife at the time and I to make a decision whether we wanted to live here or not. We were living at uh, in Bali. I was uh, the general manager of Amandari there. But anyway, we, we arrived, and, you know, we were so gracefully and warmly welcomed by the Bhutanese, by our hosts. It was amazing just that immediate warmth that you felt as you came into the kingdom. And then everywhere we went, everybody, again, was just gave you this warm smile, warm welcome, kuzuzong uh, polav, or... Just good morning, good evening. Um, English is the language for education here. So in that first visit, it was quite amazing, just that immediate interaction you could have with pretty much anyone in, on the street and in the shops and whatnot. But we did this amazing journey all the way across all of the valleys, Paro, Timpu, Punaka, Fobjika, and then out to Bumtang. And then the day we came back, this is where the story starts to get a little bit special. And emotional, so excuse me if I pause it uh, occasionally at a time, but as we we came back from Boomtong to Timpu, um, we hit a big roadblock and and there was big trees and everything that had come down a, a big landslide, and so that had to be removed. It took several hours, but what was amazing is there was probably about... 50 cars lined up and, and everybody broke out their tea and everybody broke out their biscuits. And it just sort of became a, a very impromptu social gathering and everybody just chatting and catching up and sharing all of their goodies together until everything was cleared. But then when we got back to Timpu, it was the, the evening of uh, September 11th, 2001. And um, as I say this, I get goosebumps on my, my arms. But we, we arrived in the capital. We had no idea what was going on across the world in the United States, and very quickly we got a phone call from our our joint venture partner who said, guys, this is what happened. I'm watching television now. And at that time, there were just a handful of television sets in Bhutan. And so we had a very sleepless night trying to call home, call relatives to see if people were okay. We couldn't get a line through at all. I had family in Washington, D.C. and New Orleans, where I'm from. And then the next morning, we, we got up early and went to our partner's uh, little local hotel, and they did have a television, so we're watching CNN and whatnot. And on my flight, original flight in, there was a, an, an American woman that was married to a Frenchman who was doing NGO work here in Bhutan. She managed to track me down uh, at this little hotel and, and call and say, there's a special ceremony Today at the Main Zong in Timpu, His Majesty the King has invited any Americans who are here in the country to please join this special ceremony in light of the tragedy that's happened. So I asked our joint venture partner, you know, is this something I should go? And he said, absolutely, you must go. So my wife and I got dressed in the best travel clothes that we had, went to the Main Zong, the main fortress, uh, where the seat of government in His Majesty's office is. In timpu, And so lined up around the outside of this beautiful fortress and the chief of protocol took all our names down and off we went after a few minutes and entered, walked up a set of stairs and into what was an amazing prayer room. But as we stepped through the threshold of the door into a very sort of dimly lit room, the chief of protocol read out uh, our names, uh, Mr. and Mrs. John Reed from Amman. And out came a hand, and it was His Majesty the Fourth King, and he, my condolences, you know, and my my feelings to you and your countrymen. So in we went, and we entered a room, a beautiful altar room with beautiful Buddhist statues and other deity statues, and there was um, the four queens, many members of the cabinet, other members of the royal family, and about 35 monks sitting on the floor. And we all sat, and the monks started chanting and praying. And after a while, we were invited to go up and light a bank of a thousand butter lamps. We all stopped, and, and we were lighting these butter lamps. And here I am, shoulder to shoulder, with, with the queen here, His Majesty the King there. And, and it was such an incredible and emotional moment. And so, Her Majesty the Queen, one of the queens, leaned over and said, Do you understand what this is? And I said, No, Your Majesty. And she replied, she said, Well, these uh, butter lamps are to guide all of the souls that have been lost in this horrible tragedy over the last 24 hours and so with that we we finished lighting all of these butter lamps and then we went and sat back down and the monks chanted and prayed for another 20-30 minutes and this beautiful ceremony was over that had truly been done to give a guiding energy and and light to the souls that had been lost and as we finished and his majesty the king and their majesties the queen mothers were starting to file out of the room they came to us each individually And embraced us and gave us a big hug and said, you know, we hope that you've been in touch with your family and you haven't lost anyone. And have you, you know, been able to touch base with friends and whatnot? And as they're speaking to us, I mean, I'm eye to eye with one of the queens and tears are streaming down her face. We had that engagement with each of them and then off they went. And I just thought to myself, I'm in, in the most remote you know, area of the Himalayas in this country, this kingdom, I know very little about. I've only been here for a few days. And I have no idea what's happened with my family back in the United States. I can't get in touch with them. And yet these amazing, beautiful souls, these beautiful people have embraced me as one of their own, as a fellow sentient being with so much outcaring of love and true emotion and sort of taking responsibility for me and, and those of us that were there. And my wife and I uh, had promised ourselves that we would not make a decision about moving to Bhutan or not until we were basically back in Bali and settled and make that decision. But as we left the, the altar room and we were walking down this set of stairs, she looked back at me and I just looked at her and I said, I think the decision's made. And she said, yes, that, you know, what happened on that one day, that tragedy is symbolic of Bhutan in terms of this true sense of community and how much people care for each other across the kingdom and how much they care for travelers when they come into the kingdom as well. It's truly outstanding um, that you, you see this outpouring of, of care and grief and and support between members of the community and to anybody that comes into the country itself.
2: I, we, we don't have to talk anymore. Thanks, John. <laughs> You're <right>? welcome. <laughs> <laughs> that was so beautiful and that is so Indicative of the reason why I travel. Not for any other reason but to find that exact humanity. And it's a testament that in all this chaos in the world, constant chaos, that there is always a place where people will find kindness in their heart and a way to see you as not different but exactly the same. Thank you. Most welcome. I'm so grateful.
4: And let me say, you know, as we say in Bhutan, Tashi Dele, may all good things come to you.
2: Thanks for hanging out with Ella and I. You can connect with us on Instagram and everywhere podcast. I couldn't have done this by myself, of course. So a big thanks to my executive producers, Christopher Hasiotis and the loveliest of loveliest Holly Fry, and then Chandler Mays and Casey Pegram my lead producers plus that gorgeous original music by Tristan McNeil Big love guys So this is it I'm your host Daniel Scheffler and I have a plane to catch I'll be seeing you Everywhere. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep.
1: You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck Yeah! And some
3: waves,
0: so we could go surfing.
3: I love that. A Redwood Forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping. Yeah, baby! Wait!
0: Did we just invent California?
1: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids?